You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. All right. Well, I'm Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer Georgetown, and I'm really glad you've joined us for worship this morning. It's been my hope and prayer all week long that the Lord would just fill me up, arms full of great things that I might lay on the table in front of you that you could eat and enjoy and taste to see how good God is. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1, and I want you to feel free to just find your way there on your phone or whatever device or in your Bible so that we can listen for the Word of God. As you make your way there, I want you to consider this question. What comes to mind when you think of the word salvation or Savior? Like for most of us, because we're Christians, we're already, we're not thinking about like someone joins the office team and in them we're like, oh man, you're our Savior. You have this skill, this ability, and now our team will succeed because you're here. You bring salvation. We, we wouldn't think like that. Or on an athletic team that we got a really gifted, talented person. When they're on the field, when they're on the court, we've got our Savior. The world will talk like that, that because of the presence of this person, we feel that victory is secure. Their presence brings a sense of confidence. But we who are believers, when we hear the word salvation, We think of sins forgiven. We think that we're going to be all right with God the day that we stand in front of Him because we know that Jesus has died for us. And because of that, we will sail on through. And I want you to know that salvation is so much bigger, so much grander, so much more present than that. I want you to hear the words of the salty, crusty, broken and restored fisherman who writes this book, who really, before Jesus died, was buried and rose again, if you asked him, what does salvation mean to you, Peter? He would have probably said, well, that means the Romans have to go. And and this man, Jesus, who I've been following, he's going to rule Israel and he's going to restore the kingdom. That was his greatest hope for Jesus, and that's why he couldn't bear the thought of Jesus saying that he would suffer and die. That's why he pulled his sword out the night that Jesus was being arrested, because if Jesus suffers and dies, in Peter's mind, that dream, that hope that Jesus would come and and take the physical throne of David in Jerusalem right then, that dream goes into the ground with Jesus. And Peter then has to hide. And Peter then has to be embarrassed. And Peter has to save his own skin. And so by the time he's written this book, which is about 61, 62 AD, it's right before the great persecution in Rome by Nero of the Christians. And so this is 30-something years after the resurrection. Peter has a bigger view of salvation than he did when he was face-to-face following Jesus. Peter's view had been stretched and pulled on in such a fantastic way. The gospel had been preached in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and now is reaching to the outmost parts of the earth. And Peter is seeing it. 
And in fact, his letter in the opening, as Michael preached last week, he wrote this letter to mostly non-Jewish people in the provinces of Rome. And he says, you are elect exiles. You are the chosen, beloved children of God who have been dispersed, and you're not home yet. And so what he is going to do in this first chapter is pull and stretch on our limited view of who God is and what salvation means. And it is such a a desire in my soul that he would pull and stretch on you today as he has been all week with me. That's why I want to pray and I want to invite you to pray with me and ask God to give you freedom to not be thinking about the deadlines of tomorrow or the disappointments of your past or the things that you're afraid of that might come your way to one of your loved ones, but to give you the ability to sit here by his grace and hear his voice giving you courage and strength through Jesus Christ. So pray with me. Let's ask for that help. Father, I am so grateful that when the church gathers to sing of your praises, to open your word, you gather with us. And I want more than anything to do something that I know is so far beyond me. I just want to encourage and I want to uh, lift up and I want to uh, just be a shepherd indicating, there it is, when he predicted, (laughs) what a teamwork, thanks man, Uh, when he was predicting Uh, indicating when he predicted that the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories would come. It was revealed to them, the Old Testament prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things, uh, these things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, these are the things into which angels long to look. Now, I sometimes, I'll confess this, sometimes I read a chunk of Scripture that I know I'm going to preach on, and I go, surely there was an easier way to say it than that word, salad. That's my first response sometimes. But I want to point you back to the previous passage where Peter has said, our salvation was something that God secured for us in eternity past through His Son. And that while we're not home yet, we still see Him by faith and we love Him. We don't know, or we haven't seen him face to face yet, but yet we love him. We know him. And he said that this faith that we have in him, who we've yet to see, that that faith will be refined like gold. And the outcome of that faith is the salvation of our souls. Now, a refining of gold, if that's our faith, that's a process that's going to hurt. You're not going to like it much. It's going to be painful to be shaped and conformed in the image of Christ. But that faith that you have in him is solid. It's true. And that's why he says, concerning your salvation that he just spoke about, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched for who and when of this Messiah. So what Peter is saying from his perspective is that when you read... The Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Jonah, the true object of their message was not simply the nation of Israel. It was beyond that to the residents of 
Pontius, Galatia, and Georgetown, the elect exiles. And so as you read those great stories, there is a now and not yet to the prophet's message. And so when we find that Isaiah says this in verse 40, chapter 45 and verse 22 of his prophecy, this is what God said through Isaiah, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That the object of that was first the nation of Israel, but beyond that, stretching into the greater purpose of God, beyond what they could ever imagine, was a group of elect exiles who was also the main thrust and the main purpose of that prophecy. When they would read words like Isaiah 53, a very familiar passage to us, verses 4 through 6, when he would say these words, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This passage was very much for Israel. That was the now of it, but there was something not yet, and it's us. And so the prophets, as they prophesied about what? The grace that was to be yours. Do you see that? The grace that was to be yours. The first readers of this would be like, huh? Me? Isaiah was speaking to me? He prophesied on my behalf? Yes, to them and to us, that we would hear these words, that we would be encouraged by these words. And it says that they started to inquire and search carefully and diligently because the Spirit of Christ was in them. Old Testament prophets, the Spirit of Christ was in them, indicating who the Messiah was and when He would come. Now, some of you, you're going, hold on, how is that even possible? Like they were alive hundreds or thousands of years before Jesus even came. Well, see, again, to pull on your perspective, those Old Testament prophets were looking forward to the cross. We, 2,000 years after, look back at it. But the same Spirit of Christ was at work in them that is now dwelling permanently in us. Because they knew that this promise of Messiah actually originated in Genesis chapter 3. In the very beginning, when there was harmony and balance and beauty, and there was only one rule given to our, our, our parents in the garden that day, that they should not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they did it anyways. They disobeyed God. And rather than crushing them, rather than destroying them right then, we have the first mention of Jesus in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that someday a Messiah will come, a man will come, and he will crush the head of the serpent and in the process bruise his heel. That was the first promise that this sin and all this destruction and something Michael spoke on last week that really touched my heart, that really moved my heart, was the idea of them being driven out of this garden, the idea that they just wanted to stay. They didn't want to leave that place. There was 
beauty there. There was harmony there. There was goodness and safety and sanctuary there, and yet they were driven out of it. But they weren't driven out without hope. They were given the promise of one who will come someday and make all things right. That promise that the prophets were looking for started there in the garden. Right after sin brought shame and fear, that promise came. And so when Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel, and Cain killed his brother Abel, there was a third son named Seth that was born. I'm certain that Eve must have looked at him and thought, maybe, maybe this is the one who will stomp on that serpent's head. Maybe he's the one that will allow us to go back. And so they waited and they watched. And all of the Old Testament prophets were looking for the Messiah who was to come. They made careful inquiries and searches because they wanted to know who and when he would come. When would he suffer? When would the glories follow? Well, keep watching and see what happens next. After saying that they had inquired carefully what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories, it says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you. So stop for just a moment. After their careful inquiry, after their searches, and Jesus came eventually, Peter knows this, that 351 prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus. And after they made these careful inquiries about where he would be born, his lineage, the way he would die, all of those things, after all of that, it was revealed to the prophets in the Old Testament that they weren't serving themselves. They were serving us. Why? <laughs> I mean, was it kind of a ripoff that the prophets thought, well, I'm studying and searching this because I want to know what good is coming my way. I want to know when the Messiah is coming. I want to see this. And then the Spirit of Christ reveals in them, you're not serving yourself. You're serving a group of people who will live thousands of miles away, hundreds or thousands of years later. You're serving them. Why? Because we are, please hear this, we are the object of God's affection. You matter. Your life, your fears, your hopes, your insecurities, you are an object of God's affection. And the prophets probably would look at what was going on and have no clue the complexity and the aim and the reach of God's words that he was giving to them. They probably could see some of what was going on, but they had no earthly idea about residents of Pontius and Galatia or Georgetown. They could have never imagined their words would reach to this room where a group of people would sit and be encouraged. And we need this, right? We need to hear this because I've been a pastor long enough to know this. That no matter how well-dressed we are today and how well we are at greeting each other and someone says, how you doing? And you go, I'm fine. How are you? Fine. I know that that's the cordial what we do thing, but I've done this too long to, to miss this truth. There is something hurting 
in each one of us some level of discouragement, disappointment, or regret, or fear, or shame that we brought with us into this room. And we need to hear Lamentations chapter 3. We need to hear these words because they will lift us up. What does Lamentations chapter 3 say? Well, these are words we use a lot of times for confession. It says, the steadfast, hear this now, broken, confused, disappointed, hurting Christian. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I will hope in Him. This is beautiful. This is soul encouraging, right? This is light pouring in on on our hearts on a day when we find ourselves going, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. You get the benefit of Jeremiah in this here and now moment. What about Psalm 103, verses 10 through 14? (laughs) Some of my favorite words in Scripture. Hear this. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. These are the great aim of God in giving the words to the Old Testament prophets. That he was thinking of you. That he understood your hurts, your fears, your loneliness. He knows you fully and loves you completely. And this was revealed to the Old Testament prophets, that they weren't just serving themselves. I I think of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, that they dragged in front of Jesus and they took up stones and said, we caught her in the act. That means ugly scenes had occurred five minutes earlier, barged in on dragged out, physically dragged out, terrible names hurled at her. Where's the guy? We don't know. He was just a stooge in this too. They wanted her so they could trap Jesus, and they didn't care that what it meant was humiliating her, exposing her, dragging her, putting her in front of Jesus with the full weight of the law of Moses in their rocks, ready to throw at her. And light and life in human form stood there and said, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. You noble ones, come forward and be the first to throw your rock. I think of her and I think of how much shame and fear must have been going on in her heart that day when she stood there ready for her execution. And the words of life that came from Jesus were, no one condemns you, neither do I. He would be condemned for her, but he would not condemn her. And he told her to go and sin no more. 
as far as the east is from the west, so far does he separate our sins from us. Friends, listen to me for a second. There are times when I've looked up (laughs) and I've wanted to say something like this. What are you doing? What are you doing? This is not what I wanted to have happen. This is like the worst case scenario. This is the thing I feared. That's what Job chapter 3 says. The thing that I was afraid of has come upon me. I wish I'd never been born. These are the worst days of my life. It'd been better off for me, Job says, if I'd never even taken a breath. There are times you want to look up at God and you want to say, I don't understand and I don't like this. And you try to put into your mind's uh, eye, you try to grapple with what's going on and what's God up to. And you, you can think of maybe two things. Both of them are wrong, probably. But you're trying to make sense of the plan of God. And here's the reality. The Old Testament prophets could have never imagined this room today, but God could. God could see us. God could understand what we needed, and he could speak words that would hit both them and us in the fullness of time. And someday in heaven, when we're there and we look back on these words, we'll have greater clarity then than we could ever imagine. They were not serving themselves. They were serving us. Now listen, I don't think that they ever looked up and thought, oh, come on, man. I mean, I... I thought I was going to get something out of this. No. They weren't worried about a what about me attitude. Do you know there, I mean, there's, it takes a lot of faith to let go of what about me, right? To to give money into a, a, a church, you could have kept that money and bought yourself something, lots of somethings. So it takes faith. It takes letting go of what about me. It takes letting go of what am I going to get out of this. To go and serve somewhere is is going to have to put down the what about me. Not serving ourselves, but serving someone else who is yet to be here. Someone else who will come later on that needs to hear the good news of Lamentations chapter 3 and John chapter 8. That Jesus is a sin bearer. It's going to take faith to let go of the what about me. Right? And say, God... I can't understand the complexity of what you're doing, but I know that you love me, and I know that your plan is greater than I can imagine, and so I will let go of my here and now and the things I understand and want because you are at work in and through me in ways I could not even begin to imagine, and so we let go of that, but I promise you this, there are whole ministries out there that are set up like Burger King to say, have it your way. Like, what do we got to do to get more people to come here and enjoy this and have programs and all that so that you'll just come back? And I just go, that's in total contrast to what I'm seeing here. Jesus didn't come to serve himself, but to serve others. The prophets weren't serving themselves. They were serving us. The long line in front of us of godly witnesses for Christ were letting go of what they could get and find and keep and hoard to themselves. They were letting go because God was worthy. And they didn't have to tend to themselves because they knew that God would. And that's what's going on here 
as he says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but they were serving you. How? In what way? Well, by the gospel that was being announced to you through the uh, Holy Spirit that was sent from heaven. And then we're left with this peculiar phrase that these are things which angels long to look, into which angels long to look. It's, it is a curious phrase. You know, Hebrews at the end of the book says, um, be careful to practice hospitality. Some of you have entertained angels without knowing it. And you go, what? What did that just say? Angels hidden from my sight, yet maybe in human form, interacting with us. I don't know. It's possible. Or just watching. The fact is, the truth is that Scripture points to the idea that angels invisibly here with us, watching, loving what they're seeing, loving the unfolding plan of God. They long to look into our salvation. Why? Well, come with me for a moment. Come with me back to eternity past. Come and and let's think about what an angel created by God, this immensely powerful spiritual being that was created by triune God for sharing in His glory, worshiping Him, enjoying God. And the highest order of the angels, because there was different levels and different structures and different types of angels, numbers beyond measure, the highest order was called a cherubim. And one of them was named Michael, one of them Gabriel, and one of them Lucifer. And while theologians debate, is that a proper name or is that a title? We don't know, but it means the bright morning star. This Lucifer was the highest order of angelic being. He led other angels into the presence of God to enjoy and worship Him. And Scripture tells us that one day, you can find Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14, and again, there is debate about this, but I I, I am utterly convinced these are a description of how the fall happened. Scripture says that one day, in a fit of self Love and what about me-ism, Lucifer looked at himself, saw his own glory and grandeur, and swept himself right off of his angelic feet. He saw the worth and value of his own beauty and decided, why don't I get some credit? Why don't I get some recognition, some songs, some praise maybe even? And then in Isaiah chapter uh, 14, it describes five times that he said, I will raise my throne above the Most High. I will be like the Most High. I will ascend above the Most High. And this is rebellion against the God who had created him. It was open rebellion in front of the angelic realm whom God had created. And in that moment... The triune God said, to the lake of fire, you will go. And here's where Satan lifts up his voice and says, that's unfair. That's not right. And he became the accuser of God in front of the angelic realm and somehow persuaded one third of the angels to rebel openly against God and take heaven for themselves. That was his aim. That was his desire. And he was cast down 
for this sin against God. The Godhead goes into sidebar discussion, we will say, and they say in response to this accusation of unfairness, Father, Son, and Spirit say, watch my response to the accusation of unfairness and unrighteousness. And then the plan was created for earth and a paradise that was created where Adam would be brought in, the crown jewel of God's creation, Adam and Eve, made in the image of God for the glory of God, made sinless in a paradise with angelic wisdom and power that would be theirs because they were sinless. They were brilliant. They were the stewards of God to rule the earth. Lucifer comes in the form of the serpent and says, what a great coup it would be if I could get them to fall by tempting them. And of course, that's exactly what happens. He says to them something like this, you know, you can rise above your station. You don't have to be subject to him. You can eat and you'll be like the most high, knowing good and evil. It's such a slippery little temptation there. And so they take and they eat. And Satan must have been thinking in that moment, <laughs> just like what I did in heaven in eternity past. I've succeeded. What he did not see coming and did not know about was that God had made a promise. Our loving, missionary, beloved Father came looking for the sinners. He still does that. And as he found them hiding from each other and hiding from him, he gave them the promise that though sin will have its effects of death in the world and death in your bodies and separation from me, there is a promise to come, a Messiah to come. And someday in the fullness of time, he will come forward and he will bring about something glorious and beautiful, the restoration of all things. I want you to hear this from Ephesians chapter 3, a passage that gives light to this truth. Listen to these words as Paul is speaking to the Ephesian church. Paul was given wisdom to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who, listen to this, who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So hold that on the screen for just a moment and hear these words. God created all things so that through the church, His wisdom could be put on display to the angelic realm. Now, you're going to have to take a moment with that thought. Why did God create all things? so that his wisdom could be put on display through the church to the angelic realm. One commentator said that the church is the university of the angels. They're watching how God saves fallen mankind and then works through fallen mankind to bring glory to himself. This is important because Adam was created much like Lucifer was. He was created sinless, so was Lucifer. He was created in a paradise, so was Lucifer. He was created with no, he had a, 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 all of his needs met. They were the same. 
Yet they both turned their back and walked away from God. So what does it mean that the church, who was not created like that, we weren't created in paradise. We were created in this fallen world. We weren't sinless. We were born into sin. We didn't have a paradise where all of our needs were met. We were born into a place of need and brokenness. We didn't redeem ourselves. He did that for us. And here we are this morning singing, Great is the Lord, and worthy is His name. The heavens cry out, and earth proclaims, There's no rival. There's no one like you. Satan said he wanted to be like, There's nothing like you. Do you know how that sounds to an angel who watched the whole mess happen? He, he saw the rebellion. He saw that Lucifer had face-to-face interaction with God and turned his back? Do you know what it looks like to an angel who watched all that to hear us, broken, weak, flailing people with insecurities and fears? Do you know what it sounds like to them when we sing out in praise of how great God is? You know what they got to be saying? You're right, but you have no idea how big it is. Can you hear this? The angels long to look into our salvation because it glorifies God. And they have no greater joy than to watch God glorified. They have no greater joy than to hear us say to someone else, I forgive you. I could hold anger and grief and uh, I could be a malicious gossip against you, but I'm not going to do it. I forgive you because my Savior has forgiven me. Do you know what that looks like in heaven? It must be a terrible slap in the face to every single angel who fell. They must be going, dang it. Like They haven't even seen God's face yet. And look at them. Golly, we blew it. We're going to a lake of fire, and they're going to go to the place we could have been in, all for the glory of Christ, who they just utterly hate. But every angel is like, wow. You're singing now, but you wait till you come here and join us in that choir. Friends, can you hear this? We are the curiosity of the angels because we are the object of God's affection. We're the object of his love. We're saved by grace. We have no idea how great it really is. When I was a kid in elementary school, the teacher would say, who wants to be the line monitor? We got in the hall. Everybody, you know, like that was like this huge honor. Why? Nobody's going to listen to you. Somehow you got to be the line monitor. You know, it's like, wouldn't it be a pathetic thing if being line monitor mattered a ton in your office? You'd be like, uh, that was an elementary school thing, right? Why are you fighting and looking for prizes on this earth that are so small because you are unaware of how great you are in the eyes of God, how great His glory and calling is in your life? Stop fighting for petty little things. Let go of them and serve God. Let go of what about me. Let go of what I can get right here and now. Let go of that. You're not a line monitor. You don't need to be. You are a child of the living God. You have a destiny that starts even now. Your salvation starts long before you get there. Your joy in heaven starts now. You guys know from uh, C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Great Divorce, speaking to his mentor, George MacDonald, he says, what about the saved? 
And the character says, ah, the saved. They will say that they've always lived in heaven because they'll look back and even in the darkest places of their life, they'll remember it only as an oasis where God was filling them full of himself. But the damned, they will say, I've always lived in hell. They hated their life here on earth. They hated their losses. They hated everybody else's successes. They always lived in hell because that was their perspective. Friends, I want to invite you. Let go of the what, a be, what about ism. Let, what about me ism of this life. Let go of if I cling to this, I'll be secure. If I hoard this to myself, I'll be happy. Let go of that. And serve God in the few moments that you have before you go home. And watch Him provide every need you have, every, every hope you have. Through darkest nights, He'll meet you in the valley, and He will fill you with Himself. And the angels will look on and go, you know, now that you're here with us, I was there that day when this happened, and I marveled. I marveled at what God did in your life. You didn't know it, but we were all watching, holding our breath and watching you trust a God you'd yet seen and see how good he really is. I want to invite you deeper in, higher up, that you might know the goodness of God. Let's pray.